Good morning. <clears throat> Let us pray. Good and gracious God, grant us love, grant us joy, grant us peace, grant us humility. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. My sermon text for this morning is indeed the gospel lesson assigned for today, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. <clears throat> My sermon title for this morning is Being Disappointed in the Messiah. Being Disappointed in the Messiah. This morning's gospel lesson is one of three so-called passion predictions uttered by Jesus in Mark's gospel. By passion prediction, I mean simply that Jesus is predicting his own passion, namely his own upcoming suffering, rejection, and death. These three predictions occur in the middle of Mark's gospel, and the one we have before us this morning is the second such one in order. <clears throat> the first one occurs in chapter 8, which we dealt with last week. It reads therein, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, meaning himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said all this quite plainly. Today's is essentially identical. He says, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men, the old translation states, and they will kill him. When he is killed, after three days, he will rise. The third and final occurrence is in chapter 10 and includes brief elaboration with gory details. And taking the twelve yet again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and <clears throat> the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, they will spit upon him, they will scourge him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. One wonders why the repetition. One wonders why he has to repeat himself ad nauseum three times in three chapters. One has only to look at the disciples' reactions all three times to get a clue as to why. Immediately following the first instance, back in chapter 8, Scripture reads, And Peter took Jesus and began to rebuke him. Rebuke means to chastise or to criticize sharply. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not on the side of God, but rather of man. Peter can't accept these sayings, can't accept this destiny for his Christ for his Messiah and can accept what it means for him as a follower of this Jesus. Immediately following this occasion here today in chapter 9, Scripture says, but they did not understand what he was saying and they were afraid to ask him. Why would they be afraid to ask? Because they knew 
they at least had an inkling of what he meant. They just didn't really want to hear it. What does scripture report next? When they arrived at their destination, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. Why would they be silent? Because they knew. They knew he would disapprove of their discussion. Because they understood. They just didn't really want to hear it. But they were silent. For on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. Ah. The human tendency not only to be great, but to be the greatest. The first. The best. The one to stand out. The one to get the accolades and the praise. The one to be known. To receive the recognition and the fame. No one wants to be last. No one wants to be in the middle of the pack. No one really even wants to be second. The problem here is that they are arguing over which one of them is the greatest. When what unites them is the fact that they all follow a man who has just told them that his fate is death. His destiny is demise. His outcome is failure. How can you argue over who is great when you all follow a person who loses in the end? Who succumbs to an ignominious death? And he's made it abundantly clear in preceding passages that what happens to him will happen to them. His outcome will be their outcome. His end will be their end. If any seek to be my disciples, he said recently, let them deny themselves, pick up their own cross, and follow me on the road to death. Yes, it says he will rise again, but only after death. Whoever wants to be first, he says in our passage today, must be last of all. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all. And yet I have never personally met anyone who has actively sought out the position last of all. They knew this. Hence their silence. Hence their fear of asking him further. They knew this. They just really didn't want to hear it. But surely, surely they get it now. That's pretty plain. Immediately following the third and final passion prediction of chapter 10. Scripture records therein. And James and John came forward and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us Whatever we ask of you. And he says to them, well, what is it? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in all your glory. And he said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, yes, we are able. They still seek glory. They still seek greatness. They still seek 
prominence. By his cup and by his baptism, Jesus means suffering and death. They think he means power and glory. He's talking about giving up his very life. They're talking about acquiring prestige. He's talking about failure and death. They're talking about success and prosperity. He has to say these things time and time again ad nauseum because they never ever seem to get it. They can't conceive that the person God has sent as a Messiah will be a worldly failure, not a worldly success story. Indeed, they can't conceive of God doing anything short of unmitigated victory and conquest and triumph. They cannot conceive that God operates most fundamentally through suffering and death. Because who wants to hear that? Who would sign up for that? Who wants to believe in that kind of God or follow His human Messiah? Now, you know how all this stuff is normally explained, don't you? Scholars, theologians, preachers, and experts will all tell you that the Jews were looking for a certain kind of Messiah. A powerful political and or military figure that would cast off the rule of the oppressive foreign Roman Empire and restore sovereignty to the people and the nation of Israel. They were searching, in other words, for someone who would deliver them, externally speaking, by changing, indeed reversing, the evil circumstances in which they lived and which surrounded them. Jesus, of course, didn't do that. He didn't defeat the Roman Empire and end their corrupt influence over Jewish life. Indeed they killed him. So Jesus was the opposite of what they were looking for. All of this is at least in part true. One can see the continued obstinacy. The thick headedness of the disciples. Even after Jesus has been resurrected from the grave. As their opening words to him and acts immediately upon that miraculous occurrence are. Lord will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Even after his crucifixion and resurrection, they still don't understand what kind of Messiah he is and what that means for them as his followers or disciples. But I think that explanation is overly simplistic and too political and leads to an anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic line of thought which too easily lets us Gentile Christians off the hook and releases us from culpability. So let's look at the matter more fundamentally, shall we? They are looking for a Messiah who will do something. Who will change their circumstances. Who will reverse their painful condition and make their lives better. What good is he if he doesn't do that? Why would they follow a Messiah who fails at doing those things? Who simply looks on at his people's predicament without intervening? Why follow a Christ who appears to be powerless in the face of the evil which is destroying us? If he doesn't heal me of the cancer, of the heart disease, what good is he? If he doesn't deliver my son from prison or my daughter from drug addiction, 
what good is he? If he doesn't provide me with enough money to pay my bills and prescriptions and food, why would I follow him? If he doesn't save my marriage or restore that long estranged relationship with the loved one, what good is he? If he doesn't tangibly change my life circumstances for the better, why in the world would I believe in him? Let's face it. We would never put it so crudely because it just doesn't sound right. But we are looking for some sort of payout. We are looking for some sort of return on our investment. We seek tangible benefits from our God. Not His silence during our pain. Not His inaction during our plight. Not His absence when we need Him most. The disciples are disappointed in this Messiah, and so are we. They refuse to listen to and to understand these passion predictions because they reek of failure. And so do we. And that's why each and every step of the way, each and every step of the way, Jesus speaks of embracing his own suffering and rejection and death. And each and every step of the way, we ignore precisely those things and grasp for success, popularity, and greatness. You would hardly know that we follow him. God delivered Peter and Paul from jail. But James and John the Baptist were killed in jail. And yet God was the God of all four. <laughs> and all four of them were found faithful. And yet we spend all of our time expecting to be and telling others they too will be Peter and Paul. Not James and John the Baptist. The deepest, most profound question of all in the Holy Scriptures is posed by Satan to God. About one innocent and righteous man. Satan asked God point blank. Does Job fear you for nothing? Or does he rather not fear you. Worship you. Love you. Serve you. Because you have put your hedge of protection around him. And blessed him. But put forth your hand now O God. And touch him. Destroy all that he has. And he will curse thee to thy face. But something happened to these disciples. They did not remain obtuse forever. Eventually they got it. Eventually they understood. Because eventually they went out to the far reaches of their known world. Preaching this good news of Jesus the Messiah. Not only not expecting success and earthly rewards. But undergoing great suffering and torture and crucifixion and death themselves. That something was the Holy Spirit. That something was the day of Pentecost. That something was a manifestation and an indwelling of the third person of the Trinitarian God who served to give them understanding, clarity, and obedience. Something happened to the Apostle Paul when he besought the Lord about a change in his external circumstances. Namely, the removal of that painful thorn from his flesh. That something was God saying, my grace is sufficient for you. 
My grace is enough. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Which leads Paul then to understand, then to conclude, oh, now I get it. When I am weak, then I am strong. And those things have happened to us too. We too have received the Holy Spirit. We too are a people of Pentecost understanding and power. We too now know that God's grace is sufficient for us in any and every circumstances. We too have accepted that victory comes But it comes through defeat. That abundant life comes. But it comes through death. Resurrection does in fact occur. But only from the grave. We know that vindication comes. But only after loss. Consolation comes. But only after grief. Forgiveness comes. But only after the pain of betrayal and abandonment. We know that some seek signs and miracles. Others seek wisdom and philosophy. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to those seeking miracles. And a foolishness to those seeking worldly wisdom. We know now the truth that Paul's saying is our saying. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, everything is made new. God may or may not change your circumstances, my friends, but He will change you in the midst of them. He may or may not get you out of your circumstances, but He will get your circumstances out of you. His grace is sufficient for you. He will give you love, joy, and peace He will increase your faith. He will give you what you need to get by. He will see you through. When you are weak, it is His strength upholding you. When you are weary and depleted, it is His power which is sustaining you. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, Paul once wrote, to show that the transcendent power belongs to God, not to us. And even though our earthen vessels have many cracks, That transcendent power is surging still. The Lord is near to those who are broken hearted. The Lord saves those who are crushed in spirit. The message and the path of Christ is that victory and vindication and new life do indeed come. But only through death and defeat. Death of that which needs to die. Weeping. May endure for the night, the psalmist once said. You can't sidestep that. And the night is normally longer than 12 hours. But what comes in the morning? Joy. Joy cometh in the morning. Being disappointed in the Messiah. Not when you understand Him. Amen.